Welcome to the Public Morality. In my forthcoming book, The Radical Declaration, An Enlightened American Idea, in the chapter that I discuss liberty and equality, I reference that it was possible in 27 states to be fired from a job because of one's sexual orientation without legal recourse. I'm pleased to report that sentence, but only that sentence, is no longer applicable. Because of the court's 6-3 ruling in Bostock versus Clayton, LGBT community now enjoys employment dis discrimination protections in all 50 states. Though the decision is consistent with the glacial and a la carte pace America has historically pursued equality, we might also posit the words of one contribute to Lazarus, better late than never. Joining me to discuss the court's ruling is Bradley Sears. Sears is Associate Dean for Public Interest Programs and Davis Sanders Distinguished Scholar of Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Professor Bradley Sears, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Let's begin uh, with the issue at hand and, and sort of walk us through what the issues were because it's it's hard to believe, but over half the states in the union offered no protection against employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So what were the cases that the court heard uh, or the court decided on recently? Yeah, so, yeah, and what you're saying is true. And I, I think, you know, they do public opinion polls of Americans, and they ask them if uh, LGBT people are already protected by non-discrimination laws. And about 90% feel that they already are, but that just, in fact, isn't the reality. Um, as you've said, uh, in 27 states, uh, there is no state law that protects LGBT employees from discrimination. Um, and although uh, Congress has tried to pass a federal law, uh, clear back since 1975. Um, to date, that law has not managed to pass in both houses and get signed by the president. So the cases that the Supreme Court recently heard are unfortunately indicative of the experiences of uh, thousands and tens of thousands of LGBT people each year. Um, in a survey that we did at the Williams Institute, about 60% of LGBT people reported being fired or denied a job. Um, even higher percentages report harassment. Um, and when you go to the work experiences of transgender people, the discrimination is so severe uh, that uh, large percentages of transgender people are homeless, living in poverty, have to resort to illegal activities to, to make a living. So um, I like to say while lesbian, gay, and bisexual people often get a job and then get fired once their identity is revealed, transgender uh, applicants can't even get across the door. So the, what the court considered was three, unfortunately, two, uh, all too common cases um, of people just trying to do their jobs and not being able to because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, you know, and jobs like being uh, like a, you know, a skydive instructor, jobs like being uh, a funeral director at a funeral home. Um, and once they, you know, try to express themselves at work and share their identity, uh, they get fired. Now, what, um, in your view, sway the majority that 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 uh, moved them to vote in favor of LGBT uh, protections? 
Um, well, I have to say that I think many of us were pleasantly surprised by the outcome. Um, and, and I guess I'll just put this kind of quickly in the context of LGBT rights cases. The arguments are pretty straightforward and simple, and they haven't really changed that much over time. But what has changed is kind of the public um receptivity to those arguments and then having members of the Supreme Court who are also members of the same uh, public. Uh, they have uh, LGBT friends um, and their kind of acceptance of very straightforward arguments has changed. So whether you look at the end of sodomy laws in 2003, marriage equality in 2015, or these non-discrimination protections today, the legal arguments have always been solid. It's just getting unbiased justices and judges uh, to receive them. And so um, what's interesting about this opinion is that Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion. He used um, a conservative approach, a textualist approach. We're just going to look at the text of the statute. And he basically just laid out, you, if you make a decision based on someone's sexual orientation or gender identity, you're necessarily making a decision uh, about sex. Um, and I'll just give a brief example. If I have a male employee and I'm fine if his wife is a woman, and if I have a male employee and, I, and I'm not fine if his wife is a man, and then I have a woman who is an employee and I'm fine if her husband is a man, I'm necessarily making a determination based on sex. It's because the sex of the employee that I'm making an adverse employment decision. And really, the opinion actually isn't that long. It kind of, uh, you know, plays uh, plays out that reasoning, but that's the basic reasoning of the decision. You know, when, when you said that um, the, the issues are pretty straightforward, I, I, I thought back to um, uh, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney. You could argue that Dred Scott was pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> and you see yeah, how... I and you see how long that took, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the same thing with with you know uh, you know wrecking the humanity of, of black people in this country, um, segregation. It's just um, you know we read those opinions today and we're like, what on earth is this reasoning? Um, and I think the th- same thing is true about LGBT rights. It's 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 not the arguments weren't there. It's not that the Constitution or the statute wasn't there. It was people who are willing to interpret it uh, in an unbiased fashion. Well, I, w- I want to talk about the actual vote, because it was a 6-3 vote rather than the, the norm that we've grown accustomed to, which is 5-4. And I was thinking back to Brown versus Board of Education that um, Chief Justice Earl Warren worked to make that a unanimous decision, because we're all ultimately talking about, at the core, an issue of human dignity, um, does the final vote 6-3 versus 5-4, does that matter at all? I, I think it does. Um, and, and look, um, you know, 5-4, <laughs> you know, in Congress, if a law passes by one vote, we, you know, we kind of accept that and move on. We don't really go back later and look at the vote. 5-4 is an honest win in the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I think we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss that. But definitely having a, a larger majority is helpful uh, in sending the message. I think particularly with this majority written uh, by a conservative justice, signed on by the chief justice, who's also conservative, uh, and then the four liberal justices, 
uh, you know, it's it's bad that we're we're at this state with the Supreme Court, but it's basically a bipartisan opinion. Um, I think adds a lot of strength to the opinion. I also think, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch is kind of um, filling, uh, uh, helping to fill the shoes of, of Justice Kennedy, particularly in this LGBTQ space. Um, Justice Kennedy would write an opinion that would make kind of, that would really play at your heartstrings, but kind of doctrinally was a little bit convoluted. Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion that was clear, concise, hardly talked about um, LGBT people as a group of people or uh, in, in any sort of uh, moving way. But it's an opinion that I think, because of the reasoning and the 6-3 vote, will stand the test of time. You know, you mentioned earlier about how we the people, I guess socially, had to catch up to the straightforward issues that were in front of us. You know, if you look at the, maybe not exact, but it's pretty close. If you look at the 2016 election results on which states went with whom, and then you (laughs) turn around and look at the states that did not, Offer LGBT protections for employment. They're they're all, they almost mirror each other, don't they? Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, very similar. And and look, um, you know, even starting with the Civil Rights Act itself, um, with the Americans with Disability Act, um, with this court decision, I, I think it's often the case um, that you have a part of the country moving forward towards equality uh, and a part of the country that's lagging behind. Um, but I think what this opinion will do is, is, is really help provide the protections uh, uh, across the country. Um, and we, you know, we like to talk about red states and blue uh, and blue states. Um, you know, there are large blue cities in all those, <laughs> in all those red states um, where um uh, you know, because of gerrymandering, because the way state legislators are set up, um, there might be have been protections in some of those states already. Um, and so I think this is exactly where you want the court to intervene. Um, kind of when the democratic process is breaking down, um, we have uh, we have another body who could step in and protect individual rights. Why wasn't the 14th Amendment enough? Because the 14th Amendment says if you're born here or you're a naturalized citizen, you get due process and equal protection on the laws. Doesn't discrimination on its face seem to violate both of those clauses? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the big limitation of the 14th Amendment is that it only applies to government, um, to government action. So to um, the states when they act um, as employers or local governments acting as employers or to, to, or to programs or services offered by the government. And there is another, and so, so what this case did is apply the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, imply, which is applicable to private workplaces. Um, it says that sexual orientation and gender identity are, are also sex discrimination and therefore prohibited. Um, uh, there's another line of cases under the 14th Amendment in which plaintiffs have been pretty successful, um, uh, particularly uh, transgender patients more uh, recently. Um, but, uh, you know, one line in Gorsuch's opinion that does stand out kind of more substantively is that sexual orientation and gender identity 
are just not relevant to workers' um, merit in the workplace. They're just not relevant indicators. Um, and every court that has determined that issue under the 14th Amendment has decided it the exact same way. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Bradley Sears. He is Associate Dean for Public Interest oh, Programs. Yeah. And David Sanders, Distinguished Scholar of Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Uh, Professor Sears, what were some of the legal arguments in opposition to this ruling, and, and, and what were they basing those those arguments on? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is, is that you have three conservatives all writing these three opinions. Um, and so you were mentioning earlier about uh, the way that uh, that uh, kind of unanimous decision was reached in Brown. Um, you know, I think the way that a 6-3 decision was reached in this case is the liberal justices also agreed to sign on to Justice Gorsuch's opinion and not write their own and potentially um, kind of more expansive concurrences. So, um, so you see a clash among the three opinions in what does it mean to follow this conservative court philosophy about being a textualist. Um, and Justice Gorsuch is saying, you just take the words in the text and what they literally mean. Um, Justices Alito and Kavanaugh um, basically have some var- have a variation on the same kind of different approach. Um, Justice Kavanaugh is saying, you don't take the literal meanings of the words, you take the ordinary meanings of the words, how people would understand them in society at the time. So he says, enough of your, you know, semantic gymnastics, uh, Justice Gorsuch. We just really look at see what the ordinary people, would they understand sex discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination? And I think what Justice Alito really hits on, we make that determination at the time the law was enacted. So we go back to 1964 and we decide uh, what people were thinking at the time. And Justice Alito actually provides a, a, a fairly extensive and um, dismal portrait about how LGBT people were treated in 1964. Well, well, I want to stay with um, Justice Alito because, I mean, he's clearly a disciple of textualism. Um, and he decried that the court was uh, legislating from the bench. That's the first time I've heard that one thrown out. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the aspects, uh, Professor Sears, has always fascinated me. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so you have to help me out here. Um, the, the textualism, as I understand it, and you've just explained the, the, the various ways to get there, but fundamentally, it's only the words um, that were written in the law, but Regardless of how you define it, it seems in a way to oversimplify the human condition. So Justice Gorsuch, um, who also says he's a textualist, wrote, An employer who fires an individual from being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undistinguishable role in the decision exactly what Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbids. Is this, in your view, a departure of, of textualism, as, as a lot of conservatives offer? Um, I, I definitely Justice Alito is, is decrying just that, that it is that this, that this uh, Justice Gorsuch approach of just looking at the words of the text um, 
you, you know, yes, you can look at the words, but what do those words mean? And what he says is what textualism really means. And, you know, he uh, references uh, the kind of uh, the the pioneer of all this textualism at the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, and says what Justice Scalia wrote about when he wrote about textualism was looking at the words meaning at the time the law was enacted. There's a way that the two arguments kind of miss each other. I mean, Justice Gorsuch is never actually arguing that sex means sexual orientation or gender identity. He's just saying if you discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, you're necessarily making the determination based on someone's still biological sex. So there's a little bit of way that the arguments kind of miss each other. Um, And I'll say this. The reasoning of all three opinions doesn't necessarily point to a kind of a a more liberal or progressive pathway of the court. These are all still fairly conservative arguments. And there's a way that even Justice Gorsuch's reasoning um, probably means the court, if it follows that reasoning, is going to feel free to make its own determinations about statutes with less deference um, to what the world is thinking or people are thinking or changing times or even what an agency who has interpreted the statute uh, might have put into regulations. It, it is, it does consolidate a lot of power for reading statutes in the court. But some, but some would um, argue, you, you sort of alluded to it already, that even in that conservative approach that Justice Gorsuch is making somewhat of a leap to pull out, to take sex and pull out sexual orientation from the word sex per the 64 yeah, I mean, Act. And, per and look, I think, yeah, I think that's why many of us were, were not as hopeful or very surprised and puzzling surprised by the decision yesterday is that Justice Alito's position, uh, opinion, particularly the first half of that opinion, is like kind of what we might have expected from a conservative court saying, look, no one was thinking about this in 1964. No one meant this for the statute. Congress has tried to pass the statute um, prohibiting sexual orientation for decades, prohibiting gender identity discrimination more recently. You know, why would they be passing that statute if they thought the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um uh, you know, kind of resolve that issue and included sexual orientation and gender identity. So that was more of the textual argument we were expecting. Um, you know, like I said, I think Justice Gorsuch's argument is very straightforward and correct um, that you can't make a determination based on sexual orientation or gender identity without considering somebody's sex. This, this is an aside, but just you listen to your last answer, it prompted me to ask you, what is the textualist approach to the Fourteenth Amendment? <laughs> so uh, it is a very uh, uh, even bleaker approach. Although maybe Justice Gorsuch's opinion will change that, but it's going back to the time that the Equal Protection Clause was enacted and deciding and just determining what people had in their minds. Uh, when it was acted kind of by this, you know, in the Reconstruction period of Congress. And so you had justices, including like uh, Justice Scalia, saying this is a provision that is only about race because that was the only thing that um, 
that Congress uh, and and the people who um, passed that constitutional amendment were considering. So let's so. Nothing. So then, am I, am I correct in assuming that you, what you're saying is that nothing between 1868, when uh, the 14th Amendment was ratified, to the present day, nothing has really occurred. It's just we just sort of frozen. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 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 there were but you know back back to the issue at hand. Uh, most of the courts that heard these types of cases have ultimately, I mean, the lower courts, have ultimately sided with the Alito argument, have they not? Um, you know, I'd say prior to um, 2015, 16, 17, yes, most of these cases were decided against LGBT plaintiffs. That's really changed in the last, you know, five years. Um, the Particularly transgender employees are, are, are winning more cases. Uh, what also happened in the last five years is that the EEOC itself um, the main agency that is uh, interpreting and enforcing uh, Title VII uh, came out with a series of opinions saying that Title VII uh, did protect LGBT employees under the prohibition of sex discrimination. Um, so you, you saw a really uh, a weight of change. Now, with the change in administration um, from Obama to Trump, uh, the Trump administration actually filed um, briefs on behalf of the employers in this case, not to protect uh, the employees' rights. You, you know, we've talked a, a lot about Justice Gorsuch, but I, I do want to give some attention to the Chief Justice because on cases, and we'll get to this later, but on cases that have the potential to be landmark cases, he be, he becomes the, the, institu the institutionalist, and he's more concerned about the institution than what group may think about a decision. I want to get your thoughts on the Chief Justice, on this this ruling and, and beyond, if you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's definitely played that role, um, you know, with the Affordable Care Act decision that, that you know, won him no friends among conservatives. Uh, you know, again, with this decision, I think he's really trying to preserve uh, the integrity of the court. Um, and I and I think probably joining this opinion, um, both joining the opinion did two things here uh, uh, for, for Chief Justice Roberts. Um, first, it created uh, not this narrow win of a 5-4, but it created a 6-3 split on the court. Second, by joining, that allowed him to assign the opinion um, as opposed to what would have been... Um, the most senior person of a 5-4 decision, which would have been Justice Ginsburg, who, given her long history um, fighting for sex discrimination, you would imagine she might have written that herself. Um, but by joining, he was then able to assign the opinion to the most junior member of the court instead, uh, Justice Gorsuch. And I, and I have to believe there was some discussion that resulted in no concurrences by the liberal justices. So I think all of those are indicative of him. I think both trying to preserve the integrity of the court, um, uh, uh, the the impact of its decision. Um, I, you know, I, I think he is at heart. I don't. I, I don't know if he's a. Uh, I wouldn't call him a friend of uh, progressive causes more generally. Um, I think there probably is some check on him on wanting to be on the right side of history, you know, and particularly on an issue like this. But before, before, before we uh, close the books on the 2020 term, 
there's a decision about DACA that's going to come between now and the end of the month. And there's two decisions on the reproductive freedoms uh, of women, um, the coverage of contraception under the Affordable Care Act, uh, and the right to access uh, to abortion in Louisiana. So um, the big decisions of this term are far from over, and I think we'll, we'll be able to make a better assessment in two weeks. Uh, before we move on, just real quickly, um, uh, when, do they de- when, do, when do they decide um, President Trump's, uh, the two cases about his tax returns? Uh, you know, I don't know the timeline for that. I know they're kind of uh, uh, on a fast track up there, but I'm, I'm, not sure, um, I'm not sure when this will be decided. You know, I was thinking, you know, it, it, I guess aside from um, – Boy Scouts helping elderly women across the street. It's pretty tough to get a 9 nothing ruling in the Supreme Court. So 6-3 may be the best you can get. And so I'm wondering, uh, is Roberts playing the role of Earl Warren, again, going back to Brown and how he maneuvered to get a 9 nothing ruling, is sort of Roberts doing the same thing for a 6-3 decision? Yeah, I mean, the the one distinction I would make is that in these decisions, Roberts often lays the groundwork for further kind of conservative encroachments on rights or the advancements of business interests. So he wrote an opinion um, that kind of won the battle um, in terms of the Affordable Care Act but also really kind of uh, gutted and changed what um, the Commerce Clause uh, meant. Um, This decision kind of is a win for LGBTQ rights. It's also a win for textualism, I mean, right? And so um, we'll have to see kind of what follows, how this reasoning of Gorsuch is used. Um, It doesn't necessarily always... I mean, I would say it most definitely doesn't mean that every result following his approach will have a progressive impact. Um, so I, unlike Earl Warren, I think Justice Roberts uh, plants the seeds for future conservative victories, even in these decisions that result in an immediate progressive win. Uh, just in terms of um, irony, because you, you can't come on the public rally and not get one irony question. That's how, those are the rules. <laughs> but but in terms of irony, I did find it ironic that Justice Gorsuch, the man who ultimately replaced Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, um, got his seat because President Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, was, wasn't even given a hearing actually wrote the majority opinion. Now, we never know how justices would think, but one would think that Merrick Garland would have voted similar to the Gorsuch in this in this case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Um, definitely. And look, there's... there's um, Gorsuch carves out two limitations at the end of his opinion, and I think it's important to, to talk about those um, briefly. And And one is... There are over a thousand federal and state laws that prohibit sex discrimination in some area of public life or in programs funded by federal or state government. So to what degree does this decision um, apply beyond the employment protections of Title VII? He says we're going to leave that to another day. He also, to the extent there's any link to the opinion, it's about really doing this close textual analysis which means he would apply 
a different analysis based on the text of each of those statutes. So some are going to be very parallel, others not. So um, he kind of he kind of tries to cabinet it in. We're just dealing with Title VII in this case. The second and probably the more worrisome of the two is to what extent is the court going to allow religious exemptions um, to Title VII and to other civil rights statutes? And we've already seen this play out, um, you know, in in various employment contexts, including the Hobby Lobby case, um, decisions about uh, people's participation, um, whether they're baking a cake or um, providing other services for a wedding uh, by a same-sex couple. So he also says he's not deciding those issues today. Uh, those are for a later day. It's very easy to imagine a conservative majority really cutting into the impact of even today's decision by expanding religious exemptions to anti-discrimination law. One of the benchmarks that I use to determine whether a Supreme Court ruling is landmark is whether or not it makes the country better or worse. Uh, I would cite Shelby County v. Holder, since we're talking about Roberts. I saw Shelby County uh, as a landmark decision, but in my view, it made the country worse because the consequences resulted in a systematic attempt to suppress the vote. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, my question to you, based on my criteria, you can't go anywhere else. Based on my criteria, <laughs> um, is this ruling landmark? And if so, does it make America better? Yeah, I, I would say on its term, this is a landmark ruling. I, this is a to provide protections for people just so they can get a job and earn the money they need to care for themselves and their family. Just to provide protections of that has been a goal of the LGBTQ rights movement, um, you know, since the beginning, since the uh, since the the early 1970s. Um, that goal has been frustrated a number of times in Congress. Um, we're talking about real people with real needs and real families, and this will provide them protections today. That's huge in terms of the impact on actual people. I think it's huge in terms of the messaging that it sends about LGBTQ people being full citizens uh, in this country. Since you mentioned Shelby, I'll say this. Um, that happened, I think, either the day at that decision was issued either the day after or two days after the marriage decision uh, by the Supreme Court. So I, I think we also have to be on guard, and we've seen this here in the U.S., uh, we've seen it by the Supreme Court, we've seen it in other countries, that LGBT rights or sometimes advances are used as a cover, um, you know, kind of a progressive cover for governments, for countries. Um, over the way that they're treating other vulnerable groups. So you saw a marriage equality decision one day, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act uh, two days later. Um, I think we have to be on guard for the same thing here. This is a great, uh, this is a great victory, but, you know, we can all walk and chew gum. Uh, this moment is really focused on um, kind of uh, the, the protest and the goals around Black Lives Matter. Um, those remain the same today as they did yesterday. Um, there are many people who are in both communities uh, who are both black and LGBTQ people. Um, 
the LGBT community owes an incredible debt for this very decision. Uh, as I know you've written a book about 1963, <laughs> 1964, 1964 followed that. Um, it was on the, the work and the, and the kind of, um, uh, the work and the overcoming of barriers that we got the statute, um, uh, from black people that is benefiting LGBTQ people today. And even more recently in the marriage equality, um, I know in this state, you know, um, the NAACP, uh, large uh, black organizations and groups, were behind the, the gay community in that fight. Um, and, for, and for all of these reasons, it's important for the LGBT community to keep true to this moment and the work that's being done in this moment, uh, which, is going to, which is going to impact all of us, which is uh, fighting the back against police abuse and mass incarceration. Professor Bradley Sears, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public rally at their studios. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may all have come on different ships. We're in the same boat now. For all of us on the public rally, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 